Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Um, Father, I thank you for um, this man, the Apostle Peter, who you used in a tremendous way. I thank you for his life that is placed on display for us within the scriptures to see him grow and to mature um, throughout the Gospels, to see him change as a man, to see him uh, grow closer to you in his own walk, to see him rise uh, in leadership of the early church, that he's not a perfect man. He's got all sorts of problems and infallibilities and And so, Lord, as he writes this letter to us near the end of his life, Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to hear his words, to hear his instruction. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, um, from pushing back against your word. We are great at making excuses, great at trying to redefine or re-explain or to explain away instructions that are found in your word. And so, Father, we come to you, our creator, our savior, and we ask that you would give us teachable spirits today. Father, we're all in different places in our life, and so, Lord, we pray that through your spirit, your word would go out and that we would each be met by it, that you would convict us, that you would move us along in our walk and relationship with you. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, which the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone who is weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. I ask that you would help me now, Lord, as I teach your text. I pray that I would be faithful to you. Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, receptive hearts, Lord. May we be learners. May your spirits guide us along through your text. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. Relax, everybody. I can feel it already. I, uh, this is lovely. Teaching through the Bible. You come to passages that uh, we could say find resistance in our culture at times. Before we um, really get into this, I will admit that this is like a, 
any passage I teach becomes the most difficult passage for me. Um, last week, I think I looked at my wife and I said, um, I'm going to be teaching on marriage here and uh, I'm sure I'm going to be learning some lessons. And I always sort of guard myself. Like I want to be the model students. Like, okay, I'm going to be teaching on this. I have to be a good boy. I have to be, you know, kind of like when I go to the dentist, my my philosophy of going to the dentist is they always ask you the question, do you floss your teeth? And so what I do is two weeks before my dentist appointment, I buy all sorts of dental floss. I'll put it in my car. I put it in my desk. I put it next to the bed. I put it in the bath. I put it everywhere and I make sure I'm flossing my teeth like crazy. And so when they ask the question, they always ask like in the present active indicative. They don't ask like, a, they say, do you floss your teeth? And I look at them and say, only the ones I want to keep. I floss all the time. I have dental floss in my car. I have it in my bathroom. I have my office desk everywhere. I floss like crazy. So I try to do this with teaching the Bible sometimes. <laughs> so this week, I knew I was going to be teaching on marriage, and I did well. I was, I, I mean, for the most till yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so yesterday was a, a trying day. There was a, I have a number of deadlines. There's today, but there's a few speaking things that I have coming. There's the baptism and and a hiccup came in the middle of yesterday that took four hours that I did not have to give to it. And so I sort of, when I get stressed and strained and I, and I have deadlines that I need to push through, I can push through for a long time. I can go without sleep. My wife observed many years ago, she said, you know, I understand that the SEAL teams taught you to be able to go without sleep for a number of days, but they never taught you to be nice when you're doing that, and, which is true. There's no nice class in the SEAL teams. It's get the job done. And so yesterday I found myself give, getting a little snippy. Um, in between running around trying to call her, she has our tornadoes, our four children in the house, and I'm trying to talk to her on the cell phone while driving, and there's too much background noise. And I'm like, I can't talk right now. I can't hear what you're saying. So we'll just talk later. Get off the phone. And then I was short last night. And uh, I don't feel like we were fighting, but I was short. I was wrong. But I, you know, I wasn't really owning up for it. Being terribly convicted because I know what I'm going to have to teach on tomorrow. And normally I review Sunday nights with Anna. Like kind of go through the text and kind of talk through points and so last night, I said, are you ready to talk through? And she said, this is a little bit awkward, isn't it? I'm like, why is that? She's like, well, we're fighting. I'm like, we're not fighting. I just got a little snippy. I'm like, we're good, right? I'm like, this, you know, I think, I'm sorry if I haven't said sorry yet. I don't know, I kind of forget. I, I, uh, this morning coming to church, she's like, I'm like getting ready. It's still like dark outside. I, hey, we're good, right? Like, we're, I, I'm sorry, um, I wasn't mad. I wasn't fighting. It was, I got a little snippy and she's laughed at me. And uh, so I, I come to this text with, with reality. I, I have not been married for 50, 60 years, but I have been married um, for coming up on 13 years now. I feel like I've, a re, I understand marriage enough to, 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 to approach it with reality. I know this text sort of 
it, it kicks against uh, maybe what our culture supports. Um, I have so many chicken scratch notes down here about how to enter into this. Um, over the years, um, doing officiating weddings, doing mar- like officiating a wedding for two people that are getting married is fun. It's a joyous occasion. Um, but I realized that as I'm officiating, it's like the one thing I always say is the one thing I heard at my own wedding when my father-in-law officiated our wedding is the one thing I remember from my wedding is he says, you two have no clue the commitment you're making to one another. And that's what I remember because I didn't. Renewing vows at like 25 years, now that's meaningful. Like there's significance. I've noticed that people don't like renewing their vows at like six weeks in marriage because I don't know that they would. At one year, I don't think people would like really like are up for renewing their vows, two years, three years. I think 10 is probably like the earliest where people are like, yeah, I think I'm ready to renew my vows or unless they became believers and they, they changed. This is, this is a hard message. I, in approaching this, I do not come from a church background. I do not come from the East Coast. I do not come from the East Coast, the Bible Belt. I grew up in California. I believe California is probably one of the most unchurched areas in the United States. There's some close runnings, of course, but basically the whole West Coast. We're more like Europe, and the the church was a thing, like even like my parents, not my grandparents, maybe my great-grandparents, we go back to, 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 to living by biblical values. So I don't really come to the text pushing back against church. Now, two weeks ago, we were in North Carolina for a funeral. And that's a different world. And I, and I get that there are people who, who push back coming from the Bible Belt because there are Christians who handle this text incorrectly. And we spend the whole time sort of kicking against those who taught and, uh, and explained this passage, what I believe, incorrectly. I would ask you to come to this text, this passage today, sort of removing that from your back. Just let it go. And, uh, and I'd ask you to sort of come to this through the spirit that I came to this. See, I, I, marriage was never really even on my radar. I would, it's not something as a, as a child, it was not something I was talked about. I, and I want to be careful because I don't want to start, uh, go too harshly against my own parents. So there's like a fine balance here, but I want to be transparent. I, I was conceived and then my parents married. And then before any of my memories, my parents were divorced by, by the time I was two years old. And their marriage together with me was not the first or the second marriage. And I believe that my childhood experience coming as a product of divorce is the mainstream within California families. If you have parents that are married together. I'm not even going to go whether they like each other or not. We won't even, like, just that your parents are still married 
You are in the very small minority, I believe. Of course, I have no facts. You guys can send me your Snopes. But, but for, and, and so marriage wasn't something I, I uh, had any, not, I don't want to say I didn't have aspiration, but it wasn't something I was thinking about growing up. Um, in my home, my mom was extremely abusive, uh, broken and fractured in many ways. Um, I found myself going to the SEAL teams, a, a culture where marriage isn't necessarily esteemed. And when I became a Christian at 22, really the, the least of my concerns, even at that point, was marriage. I was concerned with, I am a sinner. My sin was, it, it started to become just repulsive to me, like I knew how bad I was. And I lived in, in a world where combat or non-combat, the, the reality of dying was very real. Many friends were killed along the way through training, through combat. And, and so I wasn't really, there was no background. I wasn't studying, you know, I, I can't even name them, but, you know, the Christian books on courtship and marriage and, what you, you know, all the hobby horses that Christians, I, that wasn't my world. And by the time I hit 25, I knew, like I was sort of at a crossroads. I knew, I knew deep within me there was something that I knew I wanted to be married. I knew going into marriage that I was a, uh, I was a disaster waiting to happen. Well, always my whole life, but especially like in the context of marriage. Not as that, I was always told it was an accident waiting to happen. And if you know Gideon, you know what my parent was, my dad was saying. And, and that's different. Uh, so I knew that, that I, all of the statistics with my background, basically heading into marriage, the, like if I could get past six weeks, it would be a miracle of marriage before divorce. Like that's, statistically, that's where I should be. I I don't think as much as our culture, as much as our world, as much as our everything around us, it strikes me as funny with the strong feelings, the strong beliefs, the strong teachings about how marriage and relationships should happen. But quite frankly, what the world is producing is not strong families, um, healthy environments. It's creating more brokenness. And so, like I said in, in the beginning, I, I, I would hope that we would come to this text acknowledging that God is the author of marriage. If we were to go back to Genesis 2.18, we would read that then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. I didn't want to list a whole bunch of scriptures, but you could go through the whole of Bible. I believe, and if we wanted to get into debate, I could, I could pull all sorts of Bible verses that I think support the case that God intended marriage to be enjoyable. That you would be in a loving relationship, that an encouraging, a, a, a companionship, that there that you would be blessed in this union that God created. 
And so with that, when I come to the passages of Scripture, basically my only outside of the Bible for my life, knowing that when I got married, I did go into marriage with a commitment that if I fail at every single thing in my life, everything, I will not fail at my marriage and my kids as so much as it depends on me. And so I come to the text with, well, if God created marriage and God wants us to be happily married, then I want to come to this text with maybe the idea, like, just let's pretend God knows what he's talking about. And so the first rule of real estate is, this is, you guys can answer it. Location, location, we all know that one. The first rule of studying the Bible is context. Everybody's a little bit more shyer because it's not as well known. Context, context, context. Only because we've been going through First Peter would you guys have a good guess at what the context is. But this is really kind of like part two of a series that sort of began last week. Not that we really do series, but the whole the context is greater. So I want to. I'd like us to ease into this text, looking at the context. So if you would turn back a page and go to chapter 2, verse 11. This is where this context begins. Prior to verse 11, uh, from chapter 1, verse 1 to that point, Peter is making this case. um, There are exceptions, of course, but doctrine, showing what God has done for us in Christ, who we are in him. We are redeemed. We are secure the persecution and the troubles and trials that come within this world don't matter because we have security in Him. Then in verse 2 of chapter 2, because of all of this truth, there's sort of a, an application. How does it play out? And in verse 11 we read, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Right off the back, I said it last week, I want to say it again. This one makes me, is so encouraging. Right, Gunnar, how's that encouraging? He's writing to Christians. And, and see, when I first became a Christian, I thought that if I became a Christian, then I had to look like Ned Flanders, and only like two people are going to laugh at that. But I thought that a Christian was like this perfect person that, that, that the old was done away with, and that everything was done right. They no longer struggled with sin and lustful desires. But he's speaking... Beloved, children of God, believers. We know this whole book is written to believers. And he encourages them, he urges them to abstain from fleshly lust so that me as a Christian, a child of God, when I struggle with these desires of the flesh and consequently convictions for either following through intellectually or physically or whatever, there's a sure, like I'm convicted, I have the spirit within me, I... I need to restrain from these things. And Peter says the reason is not because God wants to ruin your party. God wants you to enjoy life, to be happy. And the things that we chase for happiness don't bring happiness. Look what Peter says. They war against the soul. You follow the things of the world, there's very practical, there's, there's consequences. Then he goes into verse 2 to the positive aspect. He says, 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, in the thing in which they slander you as, oh, I read the same line twice, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the verse 12 reads a little rough because of the, the literalness of the New American Standard. What it basically says is, live your lives obediently before God in excellence. Not perfection. Only Christ was perfect. But that we strive to live with excellent behavior amongst the Gentiles as they observe how we live differently from them in this world. They're going to slander us. They're going to think that the way we think is ridiculous that they've evolved, that they've matured in their thinking, that they're more intellectual and more sophisticated. But Peter says, as they're slandering you, as they observe you over the course of time, ultimately in the day of visitation when Christ returns, some of them will come to faith. Some of them will change, and certainly not all of them, but that your life becomes a display of the gospel. And so Peter says your works, your behavior, how you act is not for salvation for you've been saved through by you've been saved by grace through faith alone. But now that you've been saved, you've been created for good works and we respond with our lives to please him in response to him, in response to what he's done. Your life matters. The end of this, if you go down to verse 8 of chapter 3, which I kind of believe if you have a loaf of bread, there's the heels, right? People, heels have a bad reputation. I don't even know why. My wife, when she makes a, a sandwich and it comes to the heels part, what do, what do they do? Because I, I know she's not alone. They flip them this way, trying to fool you. <laughs> like, like, honey, I know it's the heel. I, I actually like the heels. So I've tried to, I've tried to like ask her over the years, I'm like, hey, would you make me a sandwich that's composed of the heels? Just go ahead and let them be heels. I'm okay with it. It's very difficult for like to do that. Uh, she, it's like a, she, she doesn't like heels. And so I kind of feel like this is the other end. And so probably using the illustration of the, the heel of a bread loaf is bad because it makes it sound not important. So maybe it bookends. Um, it's the outside, the, the other end of everything that's in the middle. He sort of ends with verse 8. To sum up, uh, going from early on, as he said all this stuff. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, in, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So that's sort of the end. How we live is important. Before I get into some of the things that he's talked about, notice uh, chapter 2, verse 15. As he begins to describe certain behaviors that are important to God, he says in verse 15, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So right away, as Peter is speaking and giving instruction to the Christians, to the early church, to us, he says, this is the will of God. And he says, if you 
obey the will of God, what it will do is silence, literally muzzle, uh, uh, muzzle because of my background working with law enforcement canines, with a muzzle on, those dogs are still loud. So don't think of a dog muzzle. Think of somebody who like wrestles with alligators and they like do the duct tape around the mouth because then they can't even like open up their mouth. So I have this picture in my mind that when he says, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, you will wrap duct tape around their mouths and silence the ignorance of foolish men. So that as you live your life rightly before God, as insults come, as slander comes, ultimately in the course of the long run, they'll be silenced by God. Verse 19 says, for this finds favor. The word literally is grace. For it finds grace. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So Peter says, as you're suffering in this context uh, for slaves under masters, I think we could make this stretch to today for employees under employers that as you willingly submit yourself to them, even if you're suffering unjustly, even if you're being passed over, as you submit yourself in that context, what, what, what the picture is is sort of that, that grace is being displayed in your life by how you handle these difficult circumstances. You're not taking revenge. You're not speaking maliciously. You are, verse 13, submitting yourself for the Lord's sake. And as you do this, you're trusting upon Him. Grace is bubbling up. It could be sort of a kickback. But Lord, but what? God continues in verse 21. And says, for you have been called for this purpose. There's a huge progress of maturity in your life, in your Christian life. When you can come to the reality that that you're a part of something bigger. We live in a society that's narcissistic, that cares just about itself, that everything is about me, 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 me. Everything in the New Testament says it's not about you. And so you're suffering, whether it's under the authorities, whether you're suffering under your places of employment. Peter says, for you have been called for this purpose. When you can say, Lord, this is miserable, and I understand why I'm going through this, but I trust you. You've called me for this, that it's, maybe it's a part of something bigger, something greater. That's a huge thing. Then he gives this beautiful illustration from 21 through 25, bringing Christ to the table. I'm not sure what your greatest uh, excuse on unfairness could possibly be. Whatever it is that you think that you could wiggle out of what is being said in this context that you're like you're really in an unfair situation. Peter comes with a look to Jesus. He, being God, as Paul writes in Philippians, humbled himself, came to earth, lived the perfect life. Peter says in verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not talk back. He didn't pronounce judgment. He, while suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in this context of submission, that God is calling his followers to submit for him, ultimately submission in any context leads to this. If you submit to God in a situation, ultimately what happens is it forces you to place your full trust upon God, to call out to him, to ask him for help, and to trust him to provide. Look, what's exactly what happened to Jesus as he was walking to Golgotha to give his life. Peter writes that as he did this, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds, literally in the Greek it's singular, by his wound, by his welt, it could be translated, you were healed for you were continually strained like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I've been wondering about this this whole week. This whole context fits together. There are, there are three areas that Peter is encouraging the believers in verse 13 of chapter 2 to submit yourself for the Lord's sake in to the authorities, the government above you. No government is perfect, but all government, the scripture says, is ordained by God. And he instructs us to, to submit ourselves to it, to slaves to their masters, place of employment, but slaves to masters, pretty bad situation. I, I won't even attempt to make it a rosy picture from here because it wasn't. He says, submit. Then he points to Christ. And he said, look at Christ's example that he humbled himself. He submitted himself. He did this for us. It pretty much silences us when we consider what Christ did on his own behalf. And then he gets into marriage. Why, why didn't he put all this stuff about Jesus after marriage? I don't know. Maybe it's because he wants to get our hearts postured correctly as we continue through the text. I know it has with mine. With this one, I know there's six verses for wives and one verse for guys, but I'm going to try to spread out the time uh, equally. I saw Ben panicking as... We started like three minutes later. He's like, we got to get going because Gunner went really long. We got to like, we got to get things going. So I'll try to be conscious of time here. So as we look at the context that all of this, we're encouraged to live excellently amongst the non-believers out of submission to God because we recognize that it's not about us. That when we receive Christ as Savior, when we were redeemed, we were called into the ministry of reconciliation as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That we now are a part of something greater. It's not about us. We want to view the world through God's eyes. And how we live our lives affects what people think about the gospel. And none of us are perfect. Don't, don't. Yeah, well, I hear myself. See, I'm arguing in my head with myself about my, my unregenerate self. I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites. No, hypocrites are people who say, well, we're perfect and you're not and we don't like you. Every true like Christian and the, the culture within our church is we are sinners saved by grace. Anybody here perfect? Not me. Well, I don't want to wait for anybody to raise their hand because I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> but nobody would raise their hand. 
Like, we, our standard is we want to live holy lives. When we sin, when we fail, when we're angry, when we get squabble with our wives, we repent. Our standard. And so he moves in to this. In the same way, in the same way what? We go to the, the previous section with Christ and his example. You go to verse 18, as servants are called to submit. Verse 13 ultimately is where it leads to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So submitting yourselves in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. This word submissive. Well, first I want to point out what it's not. This has nothing to do with equality. Let me just get this right off. This has, this has nothing to do with guys are better than girls and guys are smarter than girls. Guys are tougher than girls. Guys are... You, that's not what this is saying at all. There are brilliant women. There are super tough women. Um, anybody who's seen a woman give birth to a child... Any guy want to say she's not tough? No. Men, during the childbirth process, all we do is, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, that I'm a guy. Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. I could There is absolutely, how do they do, how? I mean, even outside, I mean, this has nothing to do at all with that. Um. I, I, I want to make some comments. I, I, I want to be cautious to say this, but, but almost if you're a guy, I'd say, oh, just check out. But I don't think we want to check out because for those of us that are fathers, we want to raise our daughters along godly paths. To those of us who are older, maybe I'm married, like we as a church are to help each other, to encourage each other. I, I don't want to shut off because this word submit has been so misused over the years by sinful men. I, I don't want to, to write it off as it's, it was 2,000 years ago. This is a different cultural setting. I already said that if we were going to do that, we look, at the, we, we look at the institution of the authorities that we're to submit to. When Peter wrote this, he was writing under Nero. Nero was executing Christians. Peter himself would be executed under Nero's command. The, the, the slaves, and that was a horrible situation. And yet the Christians were, even though God did not create slavery, and like I'm not even going to go to the workplace environment, yet the Christians at this time were called to submit. And so when we come to marriage, we can say, yes, during that setting, it was bad. There is no question Marriage was not the same. But in all three of these cases, for us who live in the United States, we live in, I don't want to be arrogant to say that we like live in the best country of all times, but we definitely live in like one, like one of the best of all, like that we are free, that we're allowed to participate, that we, there's so much freedom. We have it so good here. During places of employment, 
We have it so good and easy in comparison to what it was back then. In marriage, we have it so much better than it was back then. And so to submit in these cases is so much easier than what Paul or Peter was asking during this time. And so he starts out by saying, you wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. This is not a feminist thing, quite frankly. This is not that all you as a woman submit to all men because men are on this top tier. That, that's not what it's saying. This is hupotasso. The word for submit is the same word that we looked at before. This, this is not for the husbands to quote to their wives. This is for the wives to study before God. It's a willing choice to order yourself, to, not to order like command, but to, 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 to subject yourself, to place yourself under the headship of your husband, your own husband, so that a purpose clause, the reason for this is even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So, so certainly he's not writing to all, like he's not writing exclusively to, to, to women in the church who are married to unbelievers only. I believe he's, he's relating to all, all those who are followers of Christ who find themselves in marriage. But I do think in human history, women in general, as a, as a, if we're keeping a scorecard between men and women, I do believe that women tend to be way more spiritual. Like you look at the percentage of any church, there are normally more women in a church. Like it's just, so I think that there were many women during this time of writing who were believers in Christ living with husbands who are non-believers. And so Peter says, the, the reason that I'm asking you to live this way is that as your husband is disobedient to the word, he might be one without a word. And there's a play on words in the English as well as the Greek. I think it was intentional by Peter. I appreciate that. And uh, he says that as you live your lives, that your husband who's disobedient, I, I, I don't like how the NIV handles it, not that it's wrong, but in our culture, it says to those who are unbelievers. And so in our culture of Christianity in America, it's very easy to fall under the banner of they're a believer. I have my fire insurance. I haven't been to church ever, but yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, and so the idea is that they're disobedient to the word. So that would even include a believer. So you might be married to a husband that you'll see him in heaven, but he is disobedient. And Peter says that as they observe your lives, I might have gotten ahead. No, observe verse two. This is like a careful study as they watch your behavior over the course of time as you submit yourself to God and walk with him humbly. Your life, what could have an impact on your husband? I think this is an important point to hover on, but I'm, I'm like, I'm looking at the clock and like racing. That, that if you're a believer and you're a woman and your spouse it probably goes both ways to men and women, but if your spouse is not a believer, I, I want to encourage you. That I, I, I am totally confident that God cares about your non-believing, disobedient spouse far more than you do, far more than we do. He wants you to stay engaged and in your relationship 
that your life would display the gospel. If you would turn with well, you don't have to turn with me. I'll just read it for you. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter uh, continues. And listen what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So for the spouse that finds himself married to a non-believer, God desires your spouse to come to faith in Christ. He's patient. He wants you to stay faithful, to stay consistent, to live your life in this way so that your spouse would see the gospel and hopefully, prayerfully, one day they would get saved. And Peter's going to give instructions for how this will manifest itself. And what I find interesting, it doesn't say that you should go buy a case of the four spiritual lost tracks, put them in all of your husband, your non-believing husband's coffee cups, tack it on his, like, where he shaves. Like, it, it talks about your character. And God says, as you live your life, that's the most powerful testimony to, to, of the gospel for your spouse that's non-believing. In verse 3, 4, he's going he's gonna to focus on the first verse. He's going to focus on the external. And then the second verse, he's going to focus on the internal. He says, verse 3, Your dormantness must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. I wanted to look around. I even looked during the first service to see how many, like everybody knew we were doing this, so I don't see any braided hair. This isn't saying that braiding your hair is bad or even wearing jewelry is bad. He's given the warning, don't focus totally and completely on externals. Like to, like to, to get pretty, to put on makeup, to comb your hair, to brush your teeth, to wear deodorant. It's all like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I love that the translators and most of the translations add not merely this. It's not exclusively this. Our culture really focuses on externals. But where God wants us to place the most attention on your beauty is on the inside. But let it be in the hidden person of the heart, deep within you, the character where God looks with the imperishable imperishable this is what how god describes this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of god and this word precious it caught my attention um it's used earlier in 119 of first peter he uses it to describe the blood of christ so when he when god writes about the blood of christ he describes the blood of christ as being precious and then when he describes the, 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 the woman who is walking with Christ, who is developing and growing and nurturing her character within, God says it's precious in his sight. The same term that is used for the blood of Christ for us. He says, in this way of former times, women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. All through the net. If you do a word study on that word adorn and, and look at it through the New Testament, adorn is something we think of clothing, putting on externals. But in the New Testament, we see this word being used for something deep within, like our character, who we are as people, that we adorn ourselves with Christ. And he says here, the women of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord and you have become her children even if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear okay 
I got through the women. I really want to focus on the men. Um, just so I can flip the seat, make it, make it hot for everybody here. But I really liked what Charles Swindoll had to say about this uh, um, in dealing with Abraham, the Sarah submitting to Abraham. He said this, a good paraphrase of Abraham would be paid attention to him. She considered his needs. She cooperated with his wishes. She adapted uh, to his desires. And I don't know whether I say this now or later, so I'm probably going to say it now and I'll probably say it again. But what I see in these first six verses is the instruction to the ladies is you love God, you grow with God, you submit to God as you're in your institution of marriage. And for all of us, that we're not in arranged marriages. Like This is even to people like with arranged marriages, which is far, like would be far more difficult. Like when you said, I do, you like love that. Like you entered in willingly. And, 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 and I see the instruction as you, you focus on yourself so that you grow and nurture your character. As you look to your spouse, you don't consider yourself number one. And I'm going to say the same thing to husbands. So don't, don't get racing off. That you consider the other person more important and you give your life um, working with them and helping them and nurturing them and cultivating the relationship through your spirit. We are not in competition with our spouses. I look at marriages around our landscape and you think, are you guys, like you guys realize you're on the same team. Like, like, like work with each other. Like we have a relationship with Christ and I think what he's saying here is, that next to Christ, the most important relationship you have is with your spouse. And so wives, ask yourself, how much attention are you giving your husband in, 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 in relation to the rest of your relationships? How much of a priority? Superseding your children, your parents, your grandparents, your friends, your neighbors. Now you husbands in the same way, I'm not going to let you off with just one verse. I'll linger here. This is important. Now, you husbands in the same way, you husbands in the same way, what? Goes back to verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5, the big wedding passage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through the very end, this is where most weddings, the text that is used. But as we look at First Peter, and he says, you husbands in the same way, dealing with submitting to God in this, I want to bring verse 21 in Ephesians to show uh, this idea. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the whole passage and context of marriage begins with this, pos- this, this posture of we each as Christians we submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. This, this includes within marriage. And so Peter, from this, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, you husbands in the same way, submit to one another, submit to God. Your posture of humility entering into marriage and in your marriage, live with your wives. He's not simply saying cohabitate, this word is so much stronger than that. It's, it's, it's the idea of dwelling together, a sense of 
closeness, a togetherness at home, um, being in harmony with your wife. The, the, this, the, you guys are companions. The Bible describes so intertwined that you're, you're functioning in oneness. And he tells the husbands to cultivate this, to live with your wives in an understanding way. This word is to know, gnosko, this, this idea of you should know everything about your wife, the ins and outs, how, how she feels. When I officiate weddings, one of the things I, I often bring up is I tell the man that your wife comes with an owner's manual. You're given this owner's manual. Some of us are like, wait, where's this owner's manual? I could really use one of these. But the owner's manual that you're given as a husband is basically a blank journal. And it's your job, your responsibility over the course of your life to know as much and everything you can about your wife. Like in my own marriage, I've, I've learned that how we, our needs are, are different. See, I tend to, rec- uh, to, to go and become a hermit and process privately my wife when she, she needs to talk it out. So it becomes a very difficult thing when you have one person who's trying to run away and the other person's trying to talk and then they want to talk and then you're doing this because you're not, you're not mad, but you're just trying to talk. And, and so I've, in 12 years, have learned. <laughs> Kelly's laughing at me back there. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Sorry, I did not mean to call you out. I thought you were making fun of me. Um, is I've had to learn that, you know what? It's my responsibility to know my wife. And I fail. I can, like, so I know when there's... When I, my responsibility is to know her, and when she has something on her mind or something's going on, I need to realize it's not about me. I need to be able to grow and to step up and submit myself out of the fear of Christ and be like Jesus and say, okay, I'm here to serve you. It's not about me. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Let me go all the way to fully offend everybody. Like, since she is a woman. That one just doesn't sit well in our culture. I, uh, so, so this weaker, it's literally like a, a weaker vessel. Uh, maybe you can think of as it like most young boys with balls in the house, like understand like fine china. You're not to throw balls in the house because of the dishes that break. I've had a hard time learning that lesson over the course of my life. On one hand, I tend to see it this way. Um, many in my study dismiss everything that it's not. I feel that I've already made a pretty, like, women are not intellectually inferior to us. If you think that, that just shows, like, right away that they're, like, like that there are brilliant, I mean, many brilliant there's a reason that every Saturday night I go over the passage with my wife is because she, in many ways, is smarter than I am. And I need her wisdom. There's strength of, of a... Like, so it's not talking about this, this tug-of-war match. Some say maybe, maybe it... Like, some have reduced this to simply mean if you take 100 men and 100 women and you put them in a tug-of-war contest against each other, the men are going to win. Maybe. Maybe it's as simple as that. I, 
Alistair Begg, commenting on this section, he tinkers with the idea of what if this, this, this was someone weaker since she is a woman, taking the whole context into place, is that you as a man are married to a woman who is walking with Christ, taking the six previous verses into context that she has decided by her own volition to order herself under, under you, to follow your lead, to trust you. She's putting herself in a place of vulnerability. So maybe as a woman, not saying that because she's a woman, she's a weaker, but because as a woman, her, her role has been to submit herself to you. And I know I'm saying this, and I can feel all the resistance of, like, of our culture. Please don't hear it that way that there's greater responsibility for how you treat her. And I do like that it says weaker. It doesn't say the weak one and you're the strong one. You all are weak. I have no... When it comes to marriage, like quite frankly in our marriage, my wife is the strong one. I'm the weak one. She was a missionary kid, raised in the missionary field under her dad who was a pastor. And so from very early on, cultivating a spirit of, of how to handle your flesh when your flesh is revolted. I didn't have that. My family was whoever fought louder won, and it was to, to win. And so I think Peter is saying that, that you husbands live with your wives understanding a way with someone weaker than she is a woman that humble yourself and show her honor. This is the same word used earlier, honor all people, honor the king. This is elevating, respecting, cherishing, valuing. To honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Does that sound like anything? Saying men are up here and women are down here? Absolutely not. It says, husbands, your wives are fellow heirs. Cherish them, treat them as one for whom Christ died. So that... Here it is, another purpose clause. We saw it up earlier. Verse 1, the women do this so that your husbands, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one to the word. Or without a word, they may behave their wives. Here the man says, so that your prayers would not be hindered. If you're a man, I would, like, I don't, if you're, three years old, highlight that in your Bible. Every reference to to marriage within the Bible, you should always write, see 1 Peter 3, 7. God basically tells the husbands to treat your wives with this sort of dignity, respect, love, sacrifice, humility, subjection, so that your prayers would not be hindered. How you treat your wife affects your relationship with God. I, I, I don't think I did a raising of hands last, because nobody raised their hand during our service. Um, so this is, this is a question that you're not supposed to answer. I think that's called a rhetorical question. Um, right, did I get it right? Okay, my grammar person. Who here, when they're fighting with their wives, squabbling with their wives, feels like praying? Not at all. Like when I, yesterday when I was testy, 
like I just say, I was not handling the situation in a way like, oh man, I just like I just want to pray to God and just thank Him. It's like, and the reason when we're not treating our our spouses well and we want to go before God, we know we're wrong. We know we're absolutely wrong. For me to go before God and pray when with and see in my marriage, like I truly believe my wife models this passage and i'm thankful for it because it's helped me grow over the course of my life i don't know what she was thinking marrying me 13 years ago as i don't need to go into that like for as, as a navy seal and from a broken family that had given his life to jesus and everything was on the road to path and i don't know what she was thinking like i don't even know what her dad was thinking i was like what were you thinking letting her marry me and so whenever we have a fight I do believe that my wife postures herself and she would give a loudest amen for her to like humble herself before me when we're squabbling is it for, I realize that in those moments and I'm getting better with time, like I'm, when we're in a fight, I'm like 99.9999% positive that I'm ultimately at fault for, for what's going on. And so I can say in my own marriage that my wife submitting herself to the Lord under a very difficult man at times, you can say amen. <laughs> um, it has helped me grow in my relationship with the Lord. And we're out of time. But I want to end with a question about this. Let's just pretend that God knows what he's talking about when it comes to marriage. Let's just pretend, or let's just imagine, is probably the better word, is that for followers of Christ, who have trusted them with their lives, have taken his word at face value, If women who were married took this passage and simply we, we reduce it to saying, order yourselves under your husband out of fear for God, because you love God, you focus on your inward character and you live your life in that way. And the husbands took their command to submit and to live out these promises in loving their wives like Christ loved the church, each spouse considering the other spouse more valuable to them than themselves, what would marriage look like? I don't think we would see divorce if we truly had marriages where the one spouse is submitting to God and putting their spouse first and not themselves, and the other spouse was doing the same thing, if we truly sought after to apply these to our lives, I think we would have radically different marriages. God wants us to be happy in our marriages. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to laugh, to love, to enjoy one another, to have companionship through fellowship with one another in Christ that the world can't have. Our lives would look radically different. And so, Father, I've said enough. I, um, 
Lord, first and foremost, I thank you that you love us so much that you sent Christ to die for us. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we have redemption. We've been washed clean. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ you continue to make us clean. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to confess our sins. That you're gracious to us. And Father, I come before you and there are uh, just a number of people in different places and backgrounds in 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 their life right now. So Father, we pray for those who who are not married for whatever reason, Lord, and if you uh, have called them at some point to be to be married in the future, I pray that you would, um, Lord, help them to cultivate their hearts, their lives, their walk with you in a way that um, would prepare them for marriage. Father, I pray for those um, who are married. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to humble ourselves before you, um, Lord, that we would really trust you Um, in our marriages. We pray that you would give us a humble spirit within our marriages. We pray that you would help us to be quick to confess, to say I'm sorry, to forgive. Lord, I pray for the marriages where there's deep-seated resentment, Lord, um, that's been going on for a long time. I just, Lord, I just pray that you would take this from us, Lord. We pray that our, our marriages would would bring you glory and bring us much joy. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Christ's good name.